Thank you, Becky. And um, it's really is my, my pleasure and my joy to be able to be up here and have an opportunity to deliver the sermons every chance that I get. It's, um, it's a tremendous blessing to me. And uh, what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be picking up where we left off last week. So uh, in the life of Jesus, we spoke about his baptism by John and the descent of the Holy Spirit and the confirmation of his status through that as the divine Son of God. And right following that, and if you want to follow along in your Bibles, the passage reference is Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. I've entitled the message for today, Enter into His Sacrifice. Now, we've talked a little bit about the season of Lent coming up. We'll talk more about that later on in the sermon. And First, we have to look at what is going on here, because uh, Jesus himself is going to go into a state of uh, sacrificial state. And um, before we begin, uh, I'd like to ask for the Lord's blessing, and then we'll dive right into the text, because we have quite a bit to cover today. Lord God, thank you so much for the gift of life. Lord, I, I pray I ask for the presence of your Holy Spirit among us right now. I ask for the presence of the Spirit in my heart, that you would bless me with eloquence and communication, God. And I ask for the Spirit in the presence of the hearts and minds and ears of everyone in the congregation this morning and everyone listening online, that you would grant them clarity, you would grant them discernment, that you would give them peace, freedom from anxieties and the distractions which would pull us away from what you have prepared for us this morning, Lord. So I ask all of this for us in, in full assurance of your grace that you have promised to us, Lord. And we ask this through the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So we pick up Luke chapter 4, verse 1, right after the baptism of Jesus. And the text reads, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now let's pause right there. On the screen behind me, you'll see a painting. It's one of my favorite paintings. Uh, it's by a Russian painter named Ivan Kromskoy. And uh, he painted this in the mid-1800s. And it's an artistic representation, a take on what this journey into the wilderness uh, would have meant, or at least a moment from that experience in the wilderness was for Jesus. So you can see in that image that he's uh, bent over. It's a very cold-looking uh, still dawn in the desert uh, lands of, of Judea, and his hands are clasped together very tightly, almost skeletal-looking. His face is very, is very gaunt, and his eyes have a tremendous focus. And I think as we're, this will be on the screen for a few minutes, and as we are reading through the passage, I think it might be helpful to have this as a visual aid to contemplate uh, really something of what it might have been like to have, for Jesus to have put himself into this place and undergone what he did. So we're going to keep uh, reading, but it'll be on the screen for a few minutes, and if that's helpful to any of you, allow it to benefit you in contemplation. See, so already in this narrative, uh, just the first verse, let alone, we've already run across something strange. We've run across something that is somewhat contrary to our sensibilities. If you're anything like me, the temptation to glide across the service of scriptures rather than to soak and to dwell in them may have led you to gloss clean over it. Now, did you notice something strange? 
allow me to reread this account in a way that it would have occurred for me to write it if I was making the story, and maybe you'll see the difference. And Jesus then, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and with a great crowd in tow, was led by the Spirit in force and in power into the cities and into the countryside, teaching and healing all who came before Him. Now, as we'll soon see, Jesus did, in fact, do all of these things, but not before His preparation was complete. So we find, for this reason, immediately following His baptism and the descent of the Holy Spirit, and again, the confirmation of His status as the divine Son of God, that He is sent by that selfsame Spirit into the bleak solitude and cold isolation of the wilderness. But why? The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Be mindful, ladies and gentlemen, that the sign of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life does not always manifest in grandiose outward displays that are visible to others. God needs to change the inner person to make ourselves a suitable temple and a dwelling place for His Spirit. And that process deals with the unseen. See, it deals with the hidden motivations of the heart, our thoughts, our perspectives, our ideas, our worldviews, that internal narrative, none of which is directly perceptible by anyone save God and yourself. And as close as you may be to someone, as well as you may know them, as many years as you might have spent with them, you are not privy to their thoughts. You cannot help another with their inner life directly. You can only work with what they express to you. But God who made all and arranges all things, can work directly from His Spirit to yours. It is fitting, then, that the proper location for perfecting the transformation of the Spirit would be a place where every distracting non-essential was removed, be some place like the wilderness. But that was not the only reason for it, because we read further, for forty days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry." Something of an understatement, I think. And the devil said to him, but oh, wait, before we hear what the devil says, there are several things in this section of the verse that are also very crucial and important. That number 40 is very, very meaningful in the Scriptures. The number 40 in the Bible is a number of trial. It's a number of hardship. For forty days and forty nights it rained for Noah. The Jews spent forty years wandering in the wilderness before they inherited the Promised Land, and even Moses himself practiced an extended fast when he was on Mount Sinai with God. As we read in Exodus 34, so he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and wrote on the tablets the word of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So keep in mind the significance and the symbolism and the parallels of what Jesus is going through to the entire salvation history of, the, of Israel and God's people. And you have to note also that what we're about to be given here is actually the capstone of the entire temptation struggle. It can be very easy to overlook the fact that this is not the beginning of the persecution during the first few days of fasting and loneliness. 
This is the culmination of a long series of temptations. It's the last crescendo in the symphony of tribulation, the final round of the one-on-one -on -one demonic struggle against the light of the world. See, Satan had been working on Jesus for those 40 days. He'd been seeking to wear him down to find a weakness. And physically depleted, mentally bombarded, Jesus endured the spiritual equivalent of a lengthy siege without any sign of worldly rest or reprieve. The Father alone was his consolation. And I believe that this is an accurate way to summarize the focus of Jesus' whole struggle, everything we're going to be reading here, and what it represents for us as we're going to see it unfold. It's namely this, whether it is possible in life for a human being to live in such a way that eternity with God would be our sole true desire, whether it is possible to live in such a way that eternity with God could be truly our sole desire. Now, this sentiment is well expressed by St. Tikhon, who's a Russian Orthodox bishop. He lived in the 1700s, and he wrote many tracts aimed at the common person and the imitation of Christ. And as I was reading through some of these works, it occurred to me that everything he says could have been written yesterday. It's so very applicable to, to our generation as well. He writes, It is amazing that Christians of the present age, while hearing in the Holy Scriptures of eternity, are nevertheless so attached to the vanity of this world and seek honors, glory, and riches in this world and build and add on to and adorn their houses and other edifices as though there were no eternity. Forgetfulness of eternity works this in them, and the enticement of the vanity of the eyes darkens their hearts. Beloved Christians, let us inscribe eternity into our memory and without fail, ceaselessly, in true repentance, contrition of heart and prayer, let us not be enticed by the vanity of this world. And let us shun every sin as a venomous serpent. All that seems beautiful, pleasant, and dear to the sons of this age is loathsome to us. Let us truly be content with a morsel of bread and a little shack and ragged clothing. Remembrance and consideration of eternity will work this contentment in us. Now, ask yourself, would you be content with a morsel of bread, some ragged clothes, and a little shack to live in? If you had the guarantee of the loving presence of God in your heart. Here, I hold a nice job, a big house, expensive clothes in this hand, and I hold the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in the other. What do you choose? And don't fool yourself into thinking that you won't have to choose. All of us will in our own ways. Whether you have many resources or not, we all will be brought to a place in life where it will come down to a decision between something in this world or eternity. Prepare now for that decision because it's coming. So we see that Jesus fasted from food. He retreated from the comforts of civilization to bring to fulfillment the spiritual discipline of living for the eternal, while here on earth. It was necessary for the Son of God to demonstrate perfect obedience, but 
it also made him vulnerable. Before we can understand what follows, I also find it necessary to clarify something that the generation of Jesus Christ would have taken for granted. The disciples who wrote the letters and the Gospels of the New Testament did not express doubt over the existence of the devil. The same goes for the early church fathers. They did not feel he required proving. Their mention of him is nearly organic as mentioning the local geography or the duration of a missionary journey. Their concern was not in demonstrating the reality of the demonic, but in showing that those forces could actually be defeated, that there was in this world true grounds for a hope that humanity could prevail over them. We, however, live in a time where it's not particularly fashionable to speak of demons or the devil. Now, occasionally we allegorize them by speaking of the need to face our demons, or when we symbolically refer to some horrendous act as diabolical. But at least here in the West, we seem hesitant to go the step further and affirm that there is indeed a spiritual world populated by spiritual entities, and that much like our world here, some such beings live as servants of God Almighty, whereas others have chosen open rebellion against Him. Some people now argue that it makes no difference, that as long as we acknowledge what the demonic stands for, that is enough, and we can just work to avoid such rebellion in our own lives against God. But while this may be partially helpful, it is not sufficient to think of the devil merely as an idea. For by doing so, we turn a spiritual war between living spirits into a human psychological issue. But a concept does not plot against you. An ideology does not prowl the world like a roaring lion, seeking those whom it may devour. And personally, I can think of few better ways for the enemy to win over the world than to convince the world that he does not exist because you don't prepare for what you don't believe is real. The ancient world knew demons existed, and some worshipped them with rituals as terrible as child sacrifice. The modern world casts a condescending glance at the mention of demons, and it's manipulated just as easily. See, the great spirit of deception cares not how he fools you, only that you are fooled. But Jesus believed in the devil, he fought against him as a real and living foe. So also then should we. Now the first temptation then from the devil is as follows. If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now this is on its surface a physical temptation. It's leveraging the weakness of Jesus' body. We just read that he ate nothing for 40 days. The immensity of his, of his hunger would have been, at that point, a constant struggle in his consciousness. It would have been impossible to ignore. But what was the temptation in it? Was it wrong for the Son of God to intervene in nature? I mean, we certainly see him doing quite a bit of altering of things when he walks on water, or when he multiplied the loaves to, and the fish to feed the 5,000 when he changed the water to wine at the wedding in Cana, when he healed miraculously people of blindness, paralysis, or leprosy. Seems to be doing quite a bit of intervening in nature, so why not here? And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, 
Now, the context of Jesus' responses here is also extremely important. They are all taken from the book of Deuteronomy, and their references in that context to the final commands, the final declarations that God gave to the Israelites after their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and just before they were to inherit the promised land. So in a sense here, we see Jesus as a messianic figure. He's not only as the, a kind of a new Moses or the fulfillment of everything that Moses was, but he also, in another way, embodies really the entirety of is Israel itself, the entire salvation history of the nation of Israel, and is reliving all of its major events in his own life. So here's the broader passage that Jesus quotes from. It's Deuteronomy 8. Go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your, to your fathers, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. See, Satan wanted Jesus to take life into his own hands, to follow the dictates of his passions, and use his energy and his power towards achieving ends of his own making, rather than depending on the Father for guidance. He was hungry, and he had the power to change that. So why not make it so? Why all the unnecessary delay? Why the unnecessary suffering? Why not be what we might nowadays call a self-made man? Now, referring to ourselves as the highest moral authority is perhaps the central virtue of the modern world. Everywhere we look, especially in Sebastopol, we're told in one way or another that the answer to all of life's problems lies within us. Well, we've been following that program for a while now, and I think we've mined the very depths of darkness in the process if you look back to the Old Testament, this is not a new pattern. The book of Judges uh, records a series of rebellions of God's people against God, and God continuously has to bring them back and forgive them and to, and to admonish them, and then they rebel again. And the book actually ends, the fi this is the final words of the book with these sobering words after the, a period of rebellion and God's people are, are lost again. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes and it ends. Every man to himself. That was the temptation. Trust the desires of your flesh, Jesus. Trust your stomach. Build your life around serving them. And in so doing, forget the nourishment that only the Father can give. The next temptation follows. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment in time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. So whereas the previous temptation took advantage of Jesus' physical weakness, this one aimed to corrupt the social aspect of human nature. 
all the grandeur of the greatest civilizations and empires, all the artistic achievements, all the military and political power that could be conjured together was presented to Jesus in what must have been some kind of visionary experience. It also provides us interesting material for considering the extent of demonic power. Now, classical theologians acknowledged that it was primarily through the imagination, not the intellect, but through the imagination that demons could exercise influence on human beings. In other words, not even the devil himself can control your thoughts directly, but he can incite imagery into your mind in order to provoke you towards certain thoughts or incite you towards certain actions. Something like this seems to be what Christ endured in the desert, a fantastic vision of worldly glory cobbled together and enhanced with demonic vigor. But again we ask, what precisely is the temptation? The answer lies in the meaning of the word worship. Worship is fundamentally different than any other form of reverence or respect. We are called in the Scripture and in our society to pay honor to our parents. We respect the American flag as a symbol of our nation's values. And we can admire the beauty of created things, whether natural or of human design. But worship, known theologically as adoration, is due only to the absolute, eternal, and perfect being, because it means total commitment without reserve, total, completely commitment of every fiber of your being, nothing held in back in darkness, nothing hidden back, everything given without reserve. It consists in self-abasement or humility before the infinite and devout recognition of His transcendent excellence. See, if you give something like that to anything less than God, anything less than the eternal, then you're sacrificing in, in, in the bad sense of the word. You're giving up the possibility of the eternal in your heart because you're tying your soul to something that at its very best is going to wither and fade and die away. And therefore, to give the devil any worship is no small offense. It's in fact the greatest inversion of truth there could ever be because it's not just giving a created thing the glory that's due only to the Creator. That would be bad enough, but this is more. This is paying complete devotion to the spirit of rebellion himself. It's to say without so many words that corruption is better than purity, that sickness is preferable to health, destruction more desirable than creation, death superior to life. It's a complete spiritual suicide. Now, whether Satan actually could have delivered on the promises he made or not makes no difference ultimately in the end because he would have succeeded regardless in severing Jesus from the intimate connection to the source of all being, all beauty, all life, all flourishing. We see then what follows in Jesus' response. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. How easily this is said. And yet how few of us are really willing to live out its meaning. History records for us the example of Christians who understood the gravity of worshiping only God. And many of them were called to demonstrate it with their own lives. 
One such record is known as the Acts of Justin Martyr and his companions. Justin was a strong defender of the Christian faith in a time of immense persecution, and what follows is an actual excerpt from the court records that detail the trial before and after his and his students' martyrdom in about the year 162. So this is phenomenal. This is the Roman record of the trial, the court proceedings, that led to the death and martyrdom of Justin and his, and his students. The name of the Roman prefect, is, his name is Rusticus. Rusticus said, are you a Christian then? Justin said, yes, I am a Christian. The prefect said to Justin, they say you are a learned man, and you declare to know what is the true doctrine. Listen, if you were scourged and beheaded, would you be convinced that you shall go up to heaven? Justin said, I hope that I shall enter God's house if I suffer in that way, for I know that God's grace is bestowed on all who follow him, and this until the end of the world. The prefect Rusticus said, Do you have an idea that you will go up to heaven to receive some sort of reward? Justin said, It is not an idea that I have. I am convinced of it. It is something I know well and hold to be most certain. The prefect Rusticus ordered to all the accused, Now let us go to the point at issue, which is necessary and urgent. Gather together and, without more discussion, offer sacrifice to the gods. Now to take a pause from this, this is, this is the amazing thing. They weren't being asked to, like, kill another Christian or something like that to show that their loyalty to the empire. They, weren't, they were being asked to do something along the lines of this. Take a little bit of incense and then cast it onto the burner in front of Jupiter or Mars or whatever other god there was. Because in the Roman world, that was synonymous with being a good citizen. You were participating in society. You were asking for the blessing of the gods on whatever it was. And you could even pick the god that you wanted to. That was all that they were being asked to do. Rusticus says, okay, let's dispense with the nonsense, no more talk. Just take a little bit of incense, Justin, toss it on the burner, and then you guys can go your way. We're trying to be fair to you. That's the context. And listen to Justin's response. Rusticus says, offer sacrifice to the gods. Justin said, no one in his right mind throws himself down from true worship to false worship. In other words, Rusticus, what you're asking me to do is insane. No one in his right mind would do that if he knew what was at stake. The prefect Rusticus said, If you do not do as you're commanded, you will be tortured without mercy. Justin said, We hope to suffer torment for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, and so be saved. This will bring us salvation, and so we will stand with confidence in the more terrible and universal judgment of our Lord and Savior. In the same way, the other martyrs also said, do what you will. We are Christians. We do not sacrifice to idols. Now, put yourself, as much as any of us can sitting here, put yourself in that situation. Would you respond as they did? It's hard for me to know if I would, although I know I would want to. But would you find an excuse? Would you reason to yourself that it wasn't worth it, that they threw their lives away for a, a petty squabble, for something superficial? If so, then Christ also threw away his life. 
But greater wisdom recognizes this in the words of the missionary martyr Jim Elliot, that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You are no fool to give what you cannot keep to gain what you can never lose. Everything in this world will fade, including your life. Let us learn from Christ's example and not trade the eternal for anything of this world, even a few more years of life. Let's look now at the final temptation. And he, the devil, took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and, they, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now here we have sort of there's a, a building effect. We have a truly spiritual temptation. It takes aim at the direct connection between God and man. This is not about the body or about society getting in the way between us and God, but about our immediate disposition towards God as He is in Himself. Now, as we read that, did any of you notice anything different in the format of this temptation versus the first two temptations? Obviously, the subject is different, but in the format... If you reread the passage again, you might catch it. This time, the devil has adapted his strategy because he's also using Scripture. He's quoting Psalm 91. Now, be aware of that. There's nothing more demonic than to use what you trust most dearly against you. The devil's very good at that, finding what means the most to you in life what things are most beautiful to you, and then finding a way to take those things and twist them and set yourself against them, throw you in a state of utter confusion and you don't know up from down and left from right. But Satan is, in fact, the original bad proof texter. Now, proof texting means you take a single excerpt from something, often in isolation, and you seek to establish an entire case on it alone. The problem here is not that Scripture is flawed but that the devil obliterates the context of the passage. So again, this is Psalm 91, and we pick it up in verse 9. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. So that entire passage is bracketed on both ends by the provision that you hold fast to God in love and you make Him your dwelling place. Again, it begins by saying, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, He is your refuge, no evil will befall you. And then it ends by saying, because you hold fast to God in love, He will deliver you. So what the devil was doing here is trying to show Jesus all the benefits of communing with God without what goes along with it without the necessary condition for it is that you trust in the Lord. He's your refuge. And when you know in life that someone loves you and you love them, and if that bond of love is perfect and true, 
It's not something that needs to prove itself. We know this even from our human relationships. Friendships, they dry up in an attitude of suspicion and judgment and constantly needing to be proven. They sour out when we discover also that the other person isn't interested in us for our own sake, but only for what we can do for them. Now, Jesus knew the Father loved him, and that love was all sufficient for him. Therefore, Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So we leave off on something of a cliffhanger. Although defeated, the devil is ruthlessly persistent. And as we know, he was not finished in trying to destroy Jesus. To this day, he has not finished. Now that was the last pa- uh, verse of the passage, but if we read just a single verse further in anticipation of what's to come, we read lastly, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out all through the surrounding countryside, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. See, we read earlier that Jesus was full of the Spirit after his baptism. But the power of the Spirit came after his sacrificial journey into the wilderness. And here, ladies and gentlemen, this morning, this very morning, is the most amazing news I could think to give you. The same Spirit who indwelled Jesus at his baptism, who sent him into the wilderness, and who empowered him in his miraculous ministry, that Holy Spirit can live in you and in me. Jesus himself promises us nothing less. In John 14, just before his arrest with his disciples, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And I wonder if any of you have ever thought, as I thought to myself, that, man, you know, wouldn't it have been just so, such a wonderful aid to my faith if I could have been around in the time when Jesus lived, if I could have seen him physically, you know, and I could have heard him, him preach and Maybe we've just lost something irreparable, like we just have a memory to go off of. But it's not the case, because Jesus promised the Spirit, and the Spirit is going to bring to remembrance everything that Jesus said, because it's the same God that we looked at on the cross as who lives in our hearts And it's through that realization suddenly that everything we've examined this morning, it becomes so much more. It becomes so much more than an inspiring story about some heroic figure. The whole world has changed because it's now our story. It's our legacy. We can live it. Whoever believes in Jesus Christ can live as Jesus lived and greater works than these he will perform through the Spirit. Heaven above is softer blue, earth around is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue, Christless eyes have never seen. 
Birds with gladder songs o'erflow, flowers with deeper beauties shine. Because I know, as now I know, I am his and he is mine. We prepare for, uh, for Lent to start this coming Wednesday, where we're given an opportunity to mirror the actions of our Lord and enter into 40 days of fasting and prayer. And I encourage every one of you to participate in it. Time prevents me from going into much detail in this sermon. But if you're serious about seeking after God in this way and want guidance, seek me out. Send me a message. Send a message, an email to Pastor Jim and find him too because we'd be happy to give you counsel and, and advice. There's only a few things that I can recommend that you, I, you perhaps take a few notes on. Um, and again, it starts this Wednesday. But what Lent is, is Lent is a 40-day period that is, again, mirrored in exact imitation of the 40 days of Christ in the wilderness. It's a period of sacrifice, a voluntary sacrifice, where we choose to give something up in some small way to reflect the sacrifice, the greater sacrifice that Jesus himself made. Now, those of you who are good at math might be thinking, okay, Ash Wednesday, Lent starts this Wednesday, April 12th is Easter. Well, look, that's like 46 days, not 40. That's true. The math isn't wrong. Um, but what Lent involves is every single Sunday of Lent is basically a small reprieve from whatever you've uh, chosen to fast from. So the, the rationale is that because Sunday Every week on Sunday is basically the Lord's Day. It's sort of almost like a mini Easter that we are called to every single week. So on Sunday, it's not fitting to be in that attitude of, of, um, of sort of somberness and, and, and sacrifice. It's a celebratory day. So uh, that's good news. You get one day, uh, rest day a week. Uh, but uh, the ways that we honor Christ's sacrifice, um, a few kind of broad points. One is that historically... Uh, Christians have picked something in their life to voluntarily give up. And there's a few basic rules for this, because if you've worked as a youth pastor for a while, you found out that especially students are really good at finding all the loopholes in the rules. And of course, if you're a parent, you know this too. Um, and so there's a few things that go along with giving something up. First, it has to be something that's, that's not inherently bad. So I was asked, I get asked every year something like, well, you know, Luke, can I give up, like, being angry at this person at school because they were mean to me the other day? And usually my response is something like, well, shouldn't that be something you're giving up anyway? <laughs> that, you know, you, you don't give up something that's bad. You should already not be doing something that's, that's bad or, or troublesome. So what you do is you pick something that's good in and of itself. Um, and, but you also want to pick something that you'll actually feel the lack of, because this is another problem, is that you can say, well, you know, Luke, I've thought about it, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to fast from liver and onions this, uh, this Lent, and, uh, you know, by the end you'll say, you know what, I went the whole 40 days, I didn't even think about it. How, you know, probably a pretty good spiritual uh, discipline, right? Well, you know, unless that really is your go-to, then it's probably not a good thing to give up. You want to uh, sacrifice something that you'll feel probably on a daily basis, which is why a lot of people give up something like sweets or social media, YouTube, Facebook, something that you'll more or less daily go-to and you'll feel the lack of. Another thing really quickly is that historically Christians also honored a daily fast, where uh, a literal fast of food, that is, where you would uh, eat one full-size meal a day, and then uh, two smaller snacks or 
small meals that together didn't exceed the size of like a second meal. So you could think of it like two meals, but one of them gets split up. And that's another daily fast, again, to, um, to keep us in constant reminder, perhaps in addition to something else that you give up. The last thing I'll say is this, is that uh, I've noticed this, and it, and it can be a, a, a pitfall, is that in Lent you can focus and get tunnel vision and focus so much just on what I'm giving up and don't slip up and be mindful of that, that you forget to actually do the second half of what you're supposed to be doing, and that's fill that time, the, the space and the time and the energy that you've carved out by taking something away. You fill that time positively with prayer and also uh, typically some kind of almsgiving, so some kind of charity work or volunteer work or something like that. So in other words, you don't just focus on the negative, what I'm giving up, what I'm not going to do. You focus on the positive. You focus on what I am going to do. I'm going to read a daily devotion. I'm going to spend more time in prayer. I'm going to reach out and I'm going to do this. I'm going to volunteer at the food bank. I'm going to do something in my community to fill that space with love. So those are just a few recommendations and a few kind of guidelines for Lent, but really, I sincerely encourage you to, uh, to give, it, give it a go. God will meet you there, and He's met me, and He's, he's lifted me up through it, and, and it's, it's tremendous. And uh, as we close, um, I want us just to think back, as we have, again, the painting uh, on the screen behind me, to the wilderness to what that, might, that represented for Jesus and to what it might represent for us. And to borrow from the poetic inspiration of Mr. Robert Service, who was a Scotsman but who moved to Canada and was just enthralled by the, the wilderness of the Yukon, um, he wrote this poem, and maybe we can see it, although he was talking about nature, we can see it through Christian eyes. He writes, Have you swept the visioned valley with the green stream streaking through it? Search the vastness for a something you have lost. Have you strung your soul to silence? Then for God's sake, go and do it. Hear the challenge. Learn the lesson. Pay the cost. Can't you hear the wild? It's calling you. Let us probe the silent places. Let us seek what luck betide us. Let us journey, journey to a lonely land I know. There's a whisper on the night wind. There's a star agleam to guide us. And the wild is calling, calling let us go. So this Lent, let the Spirit of God take you into the wilderness. There He will change you. There in that silence and solitude, He will make you His own through the translation of your spirit into His. Don't talk about doing it. Don't go home today thinking about how good of an idea it is or how nice a story it makes. Do it. This church is a place for those preparing for eternity with God in blessed fellowship. If you want a social club or a philosopher's corner, you have plenty of options. But here we are doing so much more. And how to begin? Enter into His sacrifice. I'd like the worship band to come up as we close in prayer. Lord God, we're humbled by your power and what your power looked like here on earth, not as any earthly power was, but as humility, as true sacrifice, Lord, that you showed us that the key to real power in life is by giving, that it is, it is by giving that we receive. 
Lord, let us focus not so much on being understood as to understand, on being loved as to love, on being forgiven by our neighbors as to forgive our neighbors. God, I pray for every soul in this room, wherever they are, however near or far from you, you are not far from them. You are not far from us. All it takes is an opening, an opening of our heart. And this season before Easter can be just that time where the whole world can change and go from a place of ups and downs and temporary pleasures and quite a bit of darkness to a world that's being remade, to a world that is being brought back and restored and elevated to a greater glory than we could ever conceive. Lord, we are yours and you are ours. Let us bear that conviction in our hearts this morning and let nothing take it away from us. We ask this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.